Romans chapter 8. Part 2 of the three-part series on this text. The plan is for next Sunday to be a special day, a Sanctity of Life Sunday. We're going to have Life Network out to share some of what they do. And uh, right now, Derek is supposed to preach. I'm going to be on vacation this week, but uh, for those of you who haven't heard, his wife is uh, not in a good place, very, very ill. Um, could be life-threatening, actually. And so please be praying for her. And so uh, don't know how the week is going to shape up exactly. Um, so one way or the other, we will have a... Uh, uh, next week will be a Sanctity of Life Sunday, and then we will come back to Romans 8 after that. Uh, but please do pray. I'm going to read to you the, uh, the verses 28 through 30, and uh, then I'm going to pray. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, it's an appropriate passage for me and for many of my brothers and sisters in this room, as there are heavy things going on among our people here. Father, I pray that the truth of these words would speak to our hearts and that we would take them to heart, that we would find comfort in your plan and your purposes. Father, make us more like Jesus through these trials. I pray this in his name. Amen. I realize as I was saying that, when I say it's life-threatening, that's pretty severe. It doesn't mean she's likely to, to die immediately, but they just don't know the cause of what's lying behind her her symptoms, and some of the areas that it points to are very, very concerning. So uh, just realize that I've got to choose my words carefully here. But it is a fitting, fitting text, and I warned you, or I, I guess apologized a couple weeks ago for not warning you that since we're going to be talking about suffering and trials and affliction, God has a way of uh, putting us to the test, it seems like, when we talk about these things, and, and he is. Uh, there's a lot going on. But I want to start with this question. Do you remember your introduction to disappointment? Do you remember the first occasion in your life, first thing that caused you to realize, hmm, life is not all about fun, games, food, and what can I do next? But do you remember? What it was that first sort of shook you, maybe you didn't think about it terribly long, but, but you knew something was going on, there was a sense of, life is not what I really thought it was. 
For me, it was Rick Phillips, Jr. I was about eight years old, and uh, Rick was a, a close buddy of mine. He was my best friend. Of course, at that age, I could have three or four or ten best friends, right? Uh, the word best and favorite takes on a pretty universal meaning at that age. But very close friend. He was a baseball buddy. His dad was our, our coach, my first baseball coach. And he taught me the fundamentals of baseball. And Rick and I, we just, we hit it off. We'd, we, whenever we had baseball practice, we'd want to line up with each other and play catch to warm up. And uh, he was a shortstop and I was a first baseman. And so we had a lot of plays that he would get the ball and throw it to me. And, and uh, we'd play together through the summer. He lived about three miles away. And in those days, my parents would let me ride my bike three miles to, to hang out with him. And these days, we won't let our kids ride 300 feet hardly uh, outside where we can see them. Uh, and I'd ride over there in the summertime, and we'd play together just all day long, and it was great, great fun. And we were close. We had a lot of things in common. His parents liked me. They were kind to me. They welcomed me as, as one of theirs. And I don't remember if he had any other siblings. I'm sure he did, actually, but I don't know anything about them. I couldn't tell you anything about them. Uh, it, was just, it was one of those friendships that was already at that age so special, and, and I just knew it, we were going to be friends forever and, until the day uh, when he came and told me that they were moving, that his dad's job had uh, relocated him and they would be going away somewhere. And I don't remember spending a lot of time processing through it, but I, I do distinctly remember just the, the sense of of pain, of, of loss, of a heaviness that this really hurts. And I didn't want it to hurt. And uh, I remember that day, and I remember sort of thinking this, probably didn't articulate it this way, but, but I remember as time went on from that, I, I sort of developed this idea that that's what's going to happen to my friends. They're, they're going to go away. Uh, whether they move away or just decide they don't want to be my friend anymore, but that's, that's how it works in, in relationships a lot of times. And that was, that was hard. And, of course, that was just the introduction to disappointment because life is filled with things that uh, we think, I wish that hadn't happened. That leaves a, a mark on my soul when that kind of thing happens and, Things change, and a lot of times they change for the worse, and uh, it hurts. So I ask you, do, you, do you remember? Do you remember your introduction to, uh, to disappointment in this life, to pain? Well, this is an appropriate text for such things. I, I talked about it last week, how Romans 8.28 is one of those verses that Christians know. We just know this verse. We appeal to it in those times of suffering and hardship uh, because God tells us a great thing here. God's causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. And, and we call upon it ourselves. We, we proclaim it to others through their trials and hardships. And yet, like with all other verses in Scripture, we have to be very, very careful that we interpret it the way it was meant and not the way that we want it to be sometimes. So as we unpack this, I, I want to do so by answering three questions about verse 28 and a little bit into verse 29. First question is, what does it mean by good? All things work together for good. Well, what does good mean? Got to get that right. Uh, and my guess is that some of you are like me. You, you really hope it means to make me happy. 
Isn't that what we want it to mean? God works all things together to make me happy. Oh, how great it would be if that's what the promise was. And we, we like to think that if we, if we just give this a little more time, and we want to take a pretty optimistic view of life, if we just give this a little more time, it's going to turn around and get better. Everything's going to work out in the end, we like to think. We are going to land a better job. Or we're going to find that perfect spouse. or We're going to have perfect children. They don't look perfect now, but they're going to be perfect if we just give a little more time. Uh, or this illness is going to go away and we're going to feel better. On and on. We, we've had our bad karma. We sort of get atheistic or idolatrous sometimes. We've had our bad karma. We need some good karma. We know there's no such thing as karma, but we sort of think that way. We, we've had some yang. Now it's time for some yang, right? We, it's got to come around. It's got to get better than this because, well... We're God's children, and the Bible says he's working all things together for good. It's, it's, if we just give it a little time, it's going to get better. False teachers, by the way, prey on this mentality. And, and usually it involves you sending them money, right? If you send money to their ministry or you buy their books, you can have the good life now. Just do this. Just live like this. Just think positively. Oh, remember that? Just think positively. It's like you can control life circumstances by just your thinking. No, there's only one being that gets to do that. It's not you. It's not me. Well, and then we think, well, if it can't be that good, then surely God's going to give us something to make up for the bad stuff. I mean, he's not going to just let this continue. Uh, he's going to make it up to us. He's, he's going he's to somehow fill in the holes and the gaps. He, he may not make that stop hurting, but he's going to give us this, which, which is more than makes up for it. Kind of like, you know, when, when your kid is sick, what do you want to do? You, you put him in front of a movie, give him something fun, entertaining to do to, to make up for it. Or when I was a kid, when you had a tonsillectomy, you got ice cream. I don't know if they still do that now, but you get ice cream, and everybody want to have their tonsils out of do I have to do that to get ice cream? Can I just have ice cream? We, we want to do something to make our kids feel better. And we think, well, surely God's going to do that too. And again, sometimes teachers come along, Bible teachers, and they try to use the word of God to say this. Now, I, I know probably there's in, in a room people this side, there's got to be some people that have been here. And I, this is going to sound harsh, but I am trying to crush this for you, okay? I'm just going to let you in on the front end here. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of, some teachers will use this, this verse from Joel 2, Joel 2.25. Did I not give you that one? Oh, sorry. It's my fault, not his. Do you know the verse, Joel 2.25? Uh, I'm not even going to paraphrase. I'm just going to quote it to you. I'm sure that you have heard it. If I can find Joel, it's one of those little books. Here, there it is, Joel. Have you, heard, have you heard people say, then I will make up to you, this is God speaking, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army when I sent, which I sent among you. Have you heard people say that? God's going to make up for all those years the locust eats. All the bad stuff, all the bad years, God is going to replace that with something good. And they use this verse to, to quote that. You need to read the rest of the book. It's not written to you in your personal circumstance or me in my personal circumstance saying God's going to make it up to you. He has a very specific context. It's not what the verse means. But sometimes we do get that mentality that God's going to do something better here. 
and, and especially in America, we grow up with this entitlement mentality. That we are entitled to something better. Things ought not be this way. They must improve. They must get better. And then we find a verse like uh, 828, and we think, happy days are going to be here again. And we'll sing a song of cheer again, and however else that song goes. Some of you know that song. But this verse promises nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. The good God promises in this verse is told to us in verse 29, the good is that we will be more like Jesus. He is conforming us to the image of his son. That's the good that God promises. And that does not mean we're going to be happy in the way we typically think of happiness. We will be happy if we care about Jesus, but it's not put on a happy face and everything's great. That's the good he's going to do for us. So we have to ask the question, what is Jesus' image that he's conforming us to? What does Jesus look like? What will we be like when we get there? Now, again, we love to think about Jesus and think, oh, well, this could be great. If I end up looking like Jesus, I and mean, he was a, a man of great power. He healed people. And he cast out demons. And he took a couple loaves and fishes and made a great feast from them and he turned water into wine and he raised the dead and, and he walked on water. I want to look like that. I want to be like that. But the context of Romans suggests two aspects of Jesus' life that God is conforming us to and they're not walking on the water kind of stuff. The first one is righteousness, holiness, Think about where we've been in Romans so far. Chapter 6, Paul makes a strong case. He wants us to see that we have been transferred from that old man, that old flesh realm, into the spirit realm. We are no longer that old man. We live resurrected life, resurrection power. We died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And that same power that raised him from the dead is now working in us to release us from slavery to sin and get, make us slaves of righteousness, holiness. And in chapter 8, we've seen that the Spirit of God is at work in us to help us to kill the deeds of the flesh, to overcome our temptations and our sin. And as we do that, we look more like Jesus. Jesus was righteous. He was perfectly obedient to his Father in absolutely everything. He overcame every temptation. He abandoned his own pursuits, his own desires, his own privileges in deference to pleasing his Father. The, the book of Philippians tells us that he didn't seek equality with God, something to be grasped. He didn't hang on and clutch onto it and say, no, I'm not going down there to be one of them. He said, I will. Because this is your plan, because this is your will, I'm happy to go become a human being. He cared more about pleasing God than eating or drinking or any other earthly human pleasure. Doing the Father's will was everything to Christ. Everything. We see this in a few verses, which we may or may not have. Matthew 3, uh, 4. Yeah, there it is. And the tempter came to him, came to Jesus, said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
command that these stones become bread. Now, there's nothing wrong with Jesus using his power to turn stones to bread if he wants to. What's wrong with the picture is Satan's the one asking. And what does Jesus say? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm not here to meet my own needs and to do what makes me feel good and what nourishes me. I'm here to serve God. And I'm going to do what his word tells me to do. John 4 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Think about it. How often do you eat? Three, four, five, six, ten meals a day? That's my son. Always, always something. Daddy, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can I have this? Can I have that? And it was, it was cute when he was five and his meals were this big. But you know, now when he wants a whole box of cereal for every snack, suddenly it's not so cute. I can't afford that. Keep telling him I'm a pastor. And, and Jesus says, my food, my sustenance, what nourishes me, what my appetites are, they're all centered around doing the will of the one who sent me to accomplish his work. It's not about me anymore. In John 6, he said this, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. He said, I didn't come here to do my will. I came here to do the father's will. That's part of the image that God is conforming us to. God wants his adopted sons to become like his only begotten son so that our all-consuming passion is his will, doing what he wants. He wants us to seek first the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. Seek first above everything else. His kingdom, his righteousness. And as we do that, we become more like Jesus. We look more like Jesus. So that's the first thing. He's conforming us to righteousness. The second thing, through this context, it becomes pretty clear, I think. Perseverance in the midst of great suffering. Perseverance in the midst of great suffering. It's all over our context. Verse 17, he said, we must suffer with him to be glorified with him. Verse 21 talks about being released from slavery to corruption, which means we are now enslaved to corruption. We're decaying, and it hurts. Verse 23 talks about us groaning within ourselves, waiting for our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, our new bodies. Life hurts. Pain hurts. That's why we call it pain. We need the vision of glory. We need the Spirit to be praying for us so that we can remain faithful and hopeful through the suffering. If we're not looking to where we're going to end up, we might decide it's not worth it anymore. If the Spirit doesn't pray for us, we may back out. But as we endure, as we press on, we look more like Jesus. Because that's what he did. Jesus was a man who knew severe pain, external and internal. He knew the bodily pain, of course, on the cross, with a spear jabbed in his side. Leading up to the cross, he was beaten to such a degree that the, the, the law said, stop, you might kill him. The lashes, the, the lacerations of his flesh were intense. He knew pain. He knew suffering. None of us have been beaten 
physically like he was. But there's a whole other realm of pain. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was rejected by his brothers in his own home. You're not the Messiah. You're nothing special. And then, of course, as he hung there on the cross to suffer the wrath of a holy God. He knew pain. I read Isaiah 53 to you. Let me just recount these adjectival phrases or words that describe Jesus. Despised. Forsaken, acquainted with sorrows and grief, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced through, crushed, chastened, scourged, oppressed, slaughtered, judged, cut off. Anguished of soul, dead. Just in that one passage to describe Jesus. He was a man of sorrows. He was rejected and despised by his own people. John 1 tells us that he came, but his own people didn't receive him. Yet he never wavered. Not a second of his life did he waver from his mission to please the Father. He never stopped trusting his Father. Even as he's hanging there on the cross, his words were, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He never left the course the Father had set for him. By keeping his eyes on future glory, he triumphed over the physical persecution, the relational rejection, the the shame of the cross and crucifixion and death. We're told as much in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, the joy of glory, the joy of the kingdom, the joy of, of his Father's good pleasure, no doubt, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And and again, we so often think of the pain of the cross. That's not what he's talking about here. It says he, he despised the shame. He's an innocent man. Never had done a wrong thing in his life. He should have been received by everyone. He should have been worshipped and loved and honored and appreciated for his faithfulness to God and his hard work on the behalf of people and his teaching. All that he did, he should have, there was no reason for him to be ashamed of anything. But crucifixion was the most shameful way possible to die. A Roman citizen could not be put on the cross because it was so offensive to the Roman mind. This was saved for the worst of the worst criminals in people's minds. So there he is, hanging on the cross, and and again, our our portraits are are too sheepish in our culture. He didn't have a loincloth on. He was naked. Hanging there for everybody to see his shame. Why is he on the cross? He must have done something really awful. He's upper-level heinous if he's on the cross. And then the shame internally of knowing God the Father is pouring out wrath on him, and yet he didn't do anything. He's got our sin, not his own sin. But he didn't care. 
He had his eyes focused on the joy and the glory that would await, and he didn't care about the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Go on. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We'll leave it there. He lived in this age of corruption and decay. He experienced it in his own person. He never abandoned his commitment to the Father, not even for a second. Well, God's adopted sons become more like him as we persevere through suffering and never waver from what God has called us to do. That's what I believe it means to be conformed to his image based on the context that we are being made righteous and holy and we are being made heavenly minded. Persevere through this suffering knowing what comes next is so far glorious, more glorious than any suffering we have here can be compared to. If that's true, then now we are in a position to understand the good outcome of all things in our life, all the circumstances. God is at work through all of our circumstances and experiences to make us righteous, to make us holy and heavenly minded like Jesus. That's the good of verse 28. God is causing all things to work together so that we become more righteous and more faithful through suffering. He's working everything, the scripture says, all things, all circumstances, all experiences. Now, I I do think that includes the good things too, the the pleasurable things, because that gives us a hint of what's coming. Think about all the blessings of life. All of these pleasures give us a taste, a little nibble of what's coming, and and we have a bunch of them, don't we? Uh, The delicious bite of ice cream, whether or not you've had your tonsils out, I mean, sometimes that's pretty heavenly. At least in my world, that is. I like ice cream a lot. The smile of a young baby, especially a baby girl. You know, baby boys aren't so cute sometimes, but baby girls are just precious. Sorry, Ben. The sound of a majestic melody. Sometimes music is, is a foretaste of heaven. The gentle breeze on a mountainous hike, the hug of a faithful friend, the sight of the Grand Canyon, which I've only seen on video, but some of you have seen with your own eyes, the success of a well-planned strategy, the feeling of a crashing wave in the ocean, the rapture of marital intimacy. All these things are little colors on God's palette that he uses to make us more Christ-like, to to paint for us this picture, to paint us into this picture of who we're going to be for all eternity with Christ. And and they're good things, and God does give us plenty of joys and pleasures in this life, and we should receive them as blessings and benefits, but realize even those God intends to make us more like Jesus. They're not merely something to make us feel good. They're they're intended to make us more like Jesus. And so we should do that. Uh, But when it comes to the hard things, when it comes to suffering and affliction, it's hard for me to think of being a canvas uh, and a palette of colors to describe that. I think more of sculpting. Like, I start out as this big hunk of amorphous granite. I don't look anything like Jesus. And in order for me to look like Jesus, God has to get out a big hammer and a big, sharp chisel. 
And he starts stroking, pounding that chisel, knocking off big chunks. And it hurts. It hurts a lot, doesn't it? There are times when you think he just ripped off half of me. But it's to make us more like Jesus. He chips and he carves and it hurts. Why? Well, we're prone to wander. We're given to want to please ourselves. We're distracted from pursuing righteous things. We're easily captivated by the things of this world and lured by the temptations until we experience bad news or betrayal or loss or loneliness or persecution or pain or disappointment or the threat of death and suddenly life takes on the perspective it should have all the time. God uses these things to focus our allegiance to him and to remind us this world is not our home. At least not yet in its current sin-cursed form. And he doesn't want us to get too attached. When we grasp onto our sin or we clutch hold of the things of this life, God says, all right, it's time to loosen your grip. Because this is not what it's about. It's not about your desires and your will, and it's not about the here and now. And he loosens our grip. The point is that when disaster comes, we should see it not as a time for despair, but as a time for steadfastness and remaining true to what God has called us to do and to be, to be like our Savior and to persevere until that day comes. When Jesus comes back, and then he makes everything gloriously, satisfactorily, and eternally new. But we're not there yet. Now, assumed in this text is that God is at work, that God is causing things. So he says, God causes all things. Depending on your translation, it may say say all things work together for good, but it doesn't really matter. The Greek's kind of ambiguous as to what the subject is is because there's no supplied subject. But at the end of the day, there's no way to make sense of this verse if God is not the one who's doing the action. So no matter what your translation, the meaning is God is doing this. God is working. God is causing. And what this means is God is working behind the unpleasant things of life. Indeed, dare I say it, he's causing them. Actually, I don't have to say it because God himself said it. Here's what he says in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other And don't miss this. The one forming light and creating darkness. He's not just talking about luminaries. The next phrase modifies it. The one causing well-being and creating calamity. He doesn't say allowing calamity. 
We say that because we feel like we've got to protect God somehow. But God didn't say, I allow calamity. He says, I created. I, the Lord, who, I am the Lord who does all these. You don't need to apologize for God's sovereignty, even in the hard things. He said this to Moses. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. Remember, God's calling him to be the prophet, the mouthpiece, to go to Pharaoh. And, and Moses says, I can't do this. Neither recently nor in time past, nor since you're, you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Do you have the guts to look at a blind or deaf person and say, God did that? God has the guts to say it. Do you have the guts to say when natural disaster occurs, and we call it natural disaster, to say, God did that? He has the guts to say it. He doesn't say, I'm a reactionary God. That though things outside of my control make things horrible, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a master at, at chess, and I'm always thinking a few moves ahead. And somehow I can weave these things together to get in the general direction that I want them to take. It's not what the Bible says. Maybe the best example is Genesis 50, 20, which I believe is probably echoing in the back of Paul's mind as he writes this. This is Joseph, and he's speaking to his brothers. His dad is dead. He's now the right-hand man to Pharaoh, so he's in control of the whole nation. His brothers come and realize, oh, now that Joseph is in power, now that our father is dead, Joseph knows all the bad things we did, he's going to take his vengeance out on us. We're doomed. And they come and say, Joseph, before dad died, he said, you need to be nice to us and forgive us. I don't believe that for a minute, do you? That's what they said, and here's what Joseph says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Do you realize what Joseph is teaching us there? Everyone wants to say, if God is sovereign, man's not free. The Bible never says man's not free. I freely make decisions all the time. You freely make decisions all the time. The assumption throughout Scripture is man is freely choosing to do what they want to do. But so is God. Man's will is at work, and God's will is at work in the same event. The one big difference is God always gets his way. So you're doing things, and people are doing things, and people are de determining to do awful, awful things. And God is also at work. His will is being played out there. He means it for his own purposes. That's what Joseph says. The Bible says. This is the paradigm through which we should evaluate every evil deed and catastrophe that happens. People are doing stuff. People are making choices, and some people are out to hurt people. And God is making his choices, and the end result is no matter what happens, he's taking his people and making us more, look more like Jesus so that we'll be more righteous and more enduring through suffering and do his will.
So much more that could be said about that. We're going to keep repeating some of these themes as we get into the, the predestination stuff and chapters 9 and 10 and 11 of Romans. It, it gets pretty heavy. But that's the good. That's what he says. That's what he's talking about. He's making us look more like Jesus. He's, he's causing everything that happens in our life to loose our grip on this world and sin. Now, one point of clarification, he doesn't say that everything that happens in life is good. Evil is evil. But God is at work through the evil for his good purposes. So that's the first question. Let me see if I can get through two and three fairly quickly. Who is this for? Who, who, for whom is he working all these things together for good? He gives us two parallel phrases that describe this group. Those who love God, those are called according to his purpose. Those phrases describe the same people. People who love God and that are called according to his purpose. Let's take the, the love God first. It doesn't take much investigation to discover that people in general don't love God. Ask your friends and neighbors if they love God. You're not going to give very many yeses. Oh, there are people that pray because they want God to bless them. And there are people who go to church. Plenty of folks who want to go to heaven when they die, but it's not the same thing as having a clear love and devotion to God. And, and Paul's been describing through Romans already that there's none who seek after God, no who, who want him, none who are righteous. We're, we're rebels, we're enemies, that we don't want anything to do with God. That's, that's why we need a Savior. We don't come out of the womb screaming, I want to please God now. Mom, Dad, show me how to please God, please. You know, Sam Wise is not going to be saying that anytime soon, Dari. Sean's probably not even saying, I want you to teach me right now how to please God. That's not how we come out. What do we come out doing? Mine. No. It's my way. It's my will that matters. Give me that now. Feed me now. It's my preferences that you must bow to. And that's how we live our lives if God doesn't change us. We can't change us. The Bible says we are by nature children of wrath. We don't have the ability to do an about face. So how and why does anybody ever love Jesus? Why does, how does anybody ever love God? That's the second phrase. Those who are called according to his purpose. Of the mass of, humil of humanity that has rebelled against our creator, God calls some to his purpose. He summons us. To use the old Reformed terminology, it's an effectual call. It works. When God calls you, you answer. You don't let it go to voicemail. You don't think, oh, I'll get it later. When he calls you, you answer. That's how it works. We'll see that more in verse 30. Left to ourselves, we would all continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. But in his grace and his power, he calls us to himself to love him. He calls us to love him. Two things we should draw from this. Number one. It should be obvious that God is not working all things together for those that hate him. Oh, he's working them together, just not for their good. Every good gift that God gives to someone who hates him is a summons in a different way. It's a call to repentance. You don't deserve this good thing. You need to give thanks to your God. You need to repent. And as he's already taught in Romans 2, all of those things will be brought into the judgment. God will say, I blessed you abundantly, and you never turned from your sin and, and followed me and obeyed me. So God is not at work for the good and the benefit of people who hate him. This is why Paul elsewhere says he begs, be reconciled to God. 
Don't be his enemy. Be reconciled to him. But the second thing is, all who are called by God love him. We don't tolerate him. We don't go through religious motions. If we are called, we love him. We adore him. We want to know him. We want to be with him. He is our all in all. And we know that he's working everything together to make us more like Jesus, to encourage us, to bless us and prosper us. So that's who he's doing it for. Number three, why is God doing this? Well, we we found this out last week. He's doing this because he's promised his son an inheritance. Ultimately, God doesn't call us because he just can't stand to be without us. Have you heard people say that? God just thought heaven would be a bummer without you. What book of the Bible is that in exactly? No. We saw this last week. He has promised before the foundation of the world to create a kingdom of younger brothers who will worship and serve and honor his son, the firstborn son. And if he's got a a pool of corrupt rebels... That doesn't make for a very nice inheritance for his son. So he makes us like Jesus so that we'll be worthy of Christ, so that we'll be a worthy inheritance, so that we will want to love Jesus and want to serve Jesus and want to please Jesus. That's what the firstborn idea is all about that we already looked at. Step back for a moment take a God's eye view of history. God creates two human beings, Adam and Eve. What do they do? They turn on him. They rebel against him. They disobey him. And now God judges, as we learned in Romans 5, he judges the entire human race in Adam. All are condemned, all are dead. Sorry, son, no inheritance for you after all. They, they rebelled. No, that's not what he did. He knew this was going to happen. He's working in this, right? He knew he's going to send his son to redeem, to purchase, to go to the cross, to take on himself our sin and our punishment so that he would have a people worthy of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, your salvation is not primarily about you. And mine's not primarily about me. It is first and foremost about Jesus. He's creating a people who will love and worship his son. We'll come back to some of these ideas in the next few weeks. So the bottom line is, what do we do with this? We let suffering do its work. We work together with God to be more like Jesus. We let go of our sin and say, it's not all that pleasant. Because life hurts And we let go of our clinging to this world saying, you know, I've grown a little too fond of my relationships, of my friends, of my family, of my job, of my hobbies, of my experiences, of my hopes and dreams to be all I can be. I've grown a little too attached to those things and I've sort of come to think and and hope and believe that, that this life is heaven because I really like what's here. And God says, no, this is not heaven. And you need to let go of some things. Enjoy the good things when they come, but don't 
embrace them. Because this is not the new heavens and the new earth. And so when hard things come, we need to say, how can I become more righteous and how can I be more faithful, faithful through it? Because that's what Jesus did. And this is how we need to encourage our brothers and sisters as they are struggling through suffering. Don't tell them it's all going to get better. Just hang on a little longer. It's bound to turn around. That's at root a humanistic, atheistic, idolatrous mindset, frankly, because the Bible never says that. Some people are beaten all the way to death. Now, in that sense, it all gets better in the end because you die and get to go be with Jesus. But in this side, he's not promised you a change for the better, as we define better in that way. But he has promised us to be more like Jesus. And if you love Jesus and you love God, your greatest all-consuming passion is to please Jesus. And so let suffering do its work. Grow in righteousness. Grow in faithfulness. And recognize that someday all disappointment, all pain, all sorrows will go away. And we will have friendships and relationships that will never be broken. And above all, we will have fellowship with Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, these words are hard and they're sobering and there's a part of us probably that doesn't want to hear them. Because we want to believe that our pain will come to an end shortly. Father, make us Make us people who love your son more than we love ourselves, who have a greater yearning for eternal life than temporal life. Make us a people who enjoy your good gifts, and there are many, there are many delightful, pleasurable things even now, but, but may we hold them loosely and give them up in a moment if that's what you should ask of us. Father, make us better counselors to those who are suffering, to, to not just pat them on the back and say, buck up and cheer up, it's going to be good. And help us to be willing to say, let's think together about how God will make you more like his son through this. Father, I would imagine there are people here this morning that are rebelling against some portion of this in their own hearts. Would you reconcile them to the truth? May they see the glory of it, even if it's hard. Father, I know there are people here that are burdened for others, and our, our longing is always that you would relieve our friends and our family of the burdens. And we ask, and we should ask, but at the same time, be like our, our Lord Jesus, who said, here's my request, but at the end of the day, not my will, but yours be done. May we ask that on behalf of our friends and family as well. May we do all that we do for the glory of Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. I'm going to dismiss you now, and we'll leave it with that.
So you're, you're dismissed. <laughs>